So, good morning, everybody. How's your anger doing? Is it well and happy? Is it proliferating and creating more? That's usually the measure of success, isn't it? More, 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 and better. More and better. Anger. (laughs) And what's it doing to us personally? And what's it doing to us as a country when we have more and better anger? Yeah, we need to think about that. Okay, so when we visualize the merit field, we're visualizing a bunch of people who don't get angry. Yeah, that doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're uh, what do you call it, doormats. Yeah, they're not doormats, but they're not getting angry. And they can be assertive. Yeah, but they don't get angry to be assertive. Okay, so they have their own power. Uh, we usually think anger equals power, you know, because when you're angry, your adrenaline starts going, you feel powerful. But uh, actually, anger, in many ways, it indicates um, we, we are overpowered, which means the anger has the power over us which means we don't have power when we're angry. Yeah. We're just at the mercy of the anger, and it runs the show. And we're the victims of what anger does, because we experience the karmic results of it. So, good to remember when you're having a meditation session, thinking of all the mean things people have done to you in the past and how much you resent that and want them to learn a lesson. Yeah, good to think of the results of anger when we uh, get angry. Because we do think of the results of the anger. I'm going to be victorious! But think, what do they call it? You win the battle but lose the war? Yeah, that's often what happens with anger. Yeah. Okay, so we visualize the merit field. Here's a group of people who don't get angry, who have no need to be angry, but they are very efficacious. And they're also well-respected. So respect doesn't mean fear of somebody because you're afraid of their anger or their violence. Respect is for virtuous qualities. So compassion is the 
cause of bodhicitta. And compassion means the, is or is the wish that other beings and oneself be free of dukkha. So spend a moment and think of what kind of people or who you want to be free of dukkha and what kind of dukkha you want them to be free of. Think about here the specifically the three types of dukkha. And then also consider, do people need to deserve your compassion? So what about people who harm you? are people who don't take care of themselves. Do they deserve compassion? Is it easy to give them compassion? So even though we may not know clearly what compassion entails or really what it means, try and generate whatever your idea of compassion is now to as broad of a number of people, human beings and otherwise, that you can think of. And then let that compassion spur bodhicitta so that we'll become a Buddha able to fulfill that aspiration to remove others from dukkha.
So we may think we know what compassion is. It's a simple definition, wishing others to be free of dukkha. Not so many words, not complicated terminology, but when it comes to really thinking about it, what in the world does that mean? And uh, we can expound uh, according to the Dharma about what it means. But when it actually comes to living it, uh, everything we have expounded uh, is not necessarily helpful or clear yeah, about what it actually means to be compassionate to somebody. Okay? So what, uh, just to give you some things I was thinking about here, is um, if, if, we, uh, if we think about, okay, people, let's say, who are impoverished, yeah? when we sit down and think about them, that's one of the easiest groups of people to have compassion for. If you're doing Tonglen, yeah, you send out everything to everybody who wants any kind of material object. You know, you give them money and washing machines and and carpet that doesn't show show the dirt and you know everything that they possibly want. And it's uh, wonderful. You feel so good when you do that meditation. Okay. And then you, you get up from the meditation and then, uh, you know, there's a discussion about social welfare projects and people getting food stamps or uh, people, you know, families getting supplementary income for children and uh, even about the uh, economic bonus that everybody got last year. Uh, should it go to everybody or just the people who really, really need it? Yeah. So, because, you know, our compassion is based on equanimity, equal feeling towards everybody. So does that mean equal, so, you know, everybody gets the same amount of money? Uh, when they distribute it, even if some people already have, you know, so much money they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And, and also, there's this interesting thing in, in America, which is predominantly a, a Protestant Christian country. And, uh, you know, so that from the Christian side, there's the idea of uh, you know, helping the stranger, helping the immigrant, helping the the poor. There's very much a, a social consciousness in in Christianity as it it's taught. And then there's the American way of thinking of you've got to put your pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And you have to deserve it. Yeah, you have to deserve the help. 
Okay. So what that turns out to be is if you are poor, you ha- you deserve to get some income from the government by working. But then if you're working, you don't necessarily need so much income from the government. And what about the people who can't work? Yeah. And how easily in America, uh, when people are not employed, they are immediately branded as lazy, stupid, yeah, undeserving of help. So in this country, we have on one hand the charitable influence, and on the other hand, of you've got to deserve it. And what does deserve it mean? Mm-hmm. So is being alive enough to deserve the compassion of the country to give you material things? Or do you have to do something else to deserve it? It's an interesting question, isn't it? And what about for us on a personal level when we encounter people who ask for help? Yeah. Does being compassionate mean that we, whatever help people ask us for, we give it? Does compassion mean that we fix everybody's problems? Many people feel that compassion means that you fix everybody's problems. Yeah. And if you don't get engaged in their problem, then you're not very kind, you're not very compassionate, because you're just brushing them off. Okay. So in all cases, when we don't engage with somebody's problem, does that mean we're lacking compassion? And if we engage with it, then we have compassion. And if we try and fix their problem, it means we have compassion. Does it mean when, if we turn around and let's say somebody who doesn't take good care of themselves, and yet they're asking for help again and again, You know, are we uncompassionate when we say, figure the situation out yourself? And they say, but, 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 I can't. Yeah. So what what really does it mean to be compassionate in those situations? Now, if you have a child... And your, your child is saying, oh, I want to do this, and I need your help, you know. And you know the child has some potential, but maybe hasn't done that. And you say, no. And your child wails, you're such a mean parent, you won't help me. Are you being mean? Or should you help? the child in whatever problem they find themselves in. 
even when they're 40 years old and they're still living at home. Yeah? But doesn't it also depend on the individual child? Okay. And, you know, when you tell your child to figure it out themselves, are you being mean? When we have a Dharma question and we raise our hand, you know, like I do a lot, and and uh, I'm waiting for the teacher to tell me the answer. Yeah, and they say, look it up. You're mean. It's so much, you know the answer. It's so much easier. Just tell me the answer already. Yeah? Of course, you don't say that. But why, why should I look it up when you know? Just tell me. I thought you're supposed to be compassionate to your students. I'm one of your students. My hand's always going up. Okay. So, so what does it really mean in very specific situations to be compassionate? Okay, so this is, I think, something that's very important for us to think about. Yeah, generating compassion isn't just sitting there and doing Tonglen meditation where it's all in your imagination and it feels so good because, you know, you can give everything away, even things that don't belong to you. But when it's actually push come to shove, yeah, and they're asking you for another jacket when you know you they already have three of them, you know, then do you say yes? Do you say no? You think they don't need it. They feel like they do need it. What is it? Do you give? Do you not give? What about if they've just been mean to you? Yeah. Do they deserve to get something else? Shouldn't they have to change their behavior? And then we reward them. Whereas if we reward them and they don't before they've changed their behavior, then we are just uh, perpetuating bad behavior, you know? I remember, what is it, Pablo's dogs or Skinner? You know, you, you give them the reward after they do something you like, you know, not before. But does compassion mean that you're training people to do what you like? Okay, so there's really a lot to think about here. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of stuff that comes up every day in our personal lives. And it also comes up when we are in the role of being a citizen in this country. And what kind of 
things do we advocate and what kind of things don't we advocate? Yeah? I, I read about uh, some ladies in Texas or somewhere and they're anti-abortion, but what they say, what they've done is they've accumulated all sorts of pampers and little wipes and baby clothes. And they say, you know, if if women don't have abortions, we're going to give them what they need to raise their baby, at least in the beginning stages. Yeah, Whereas very often in the government, yeah, if you have babies and you're not working and you're a single mom, they don't want to give you anything. So you're supposed to have the baby, but then they don't want to give you food for the baby, diapers for the baby, or even give the baby an education because that costs money for the taxpayers. Yeah. And yet, we are compassionate, supposedly compassionate country. Yeah. So I thought, oh, you know, what these ladies in Texas were doing was really good. I mean, doing something actively to help new mothers who can't afford. Yeah. Babies are expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever think that? That you were expensive for your parents? Yeah. Think about it. How much money our parents had to spend to raise us and how hard they had to work to get that money to raise us. Did we ever think about that when we were little? I never did. I just said, I want more. I want better. You know, so-and-so has it. Why can't I have it? Yeah. Okay. So, so spend some time on the cushion, you know, thinking about this and thinking of specific situations that you've encountered and, and really reflect, reflect what does compassion mean? Does somebody have to be deserving of compassion? Do they have to reciprocate with something? Yeah. What if people take advantage of your compassion? Father, um, what's his name? The one who, who worked in Los Angeles. It starts with a B. Boyle. Boyle? Yeah. So, yeah, somebody once asked him, um, you know, because he was helping all these uh, gang members and families uh, in, in the barrio in near Griffith Park, I think, in L.A., and uh, somebody once asked him, you know, are, aren't these people taking advantage of you? And, you know, advantage of your, your, your privilege. And he, he said, I gave my privilege away a long time ago. Yeah. And so he would help these gang members out, not committing crimes, not to commit crimes, but when they were in trouble, 
after committing the crimes, you know, or their families needed something, he would help them then. And he's the one who established the homeboy industries, you know, which is a fantastic thing. We really need more of those. It started out as a bakery, and he got gang members from differing gangs, the gangs that usually fought, but you had to be, you know, somebody who's determined to leave the gang, yeah, which is hard. It's very hard to leave a gang. And uh, he would employ these these people, uh, you know, in a bakery. Yeah. And it's it's become quite a large thing. And he's often asked to speak at different conferences. And he likes to take some of the kids with him that he employs. Some of them have never been on a plane before. They've never been out of their own neighborhood. Yeah, and he takes them with. A friend of mine in um, St. Louis, right? I used to live outside of St. Louis. Um, she started a bakery for the guys who were newly released from prison. Yeah, they make good stuff. Yeah, maybe... Should we start a bakery? I mean, Newport's too small for a bakery, isn't it? Going to Spokane is too far. We need, but a bakery, yeah. And we have lots of people getting released. Mm -hmm. Mm Peacemakers um, initiated by Klaus Manroshi, who died um, many years ago, they do Mm -hmm. that, they... um, So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, the organization is called Homeboys, but they also help the homegirls. Yeah, I think think they started one called Homegirls, too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because usually the boys are the ones, you know, if you look at prison populations overwhelmingly male yeah um yeah the girls have the babies and then are trying to figure out how to raise the kids okay so just something you know think about and if you don't think about it now for sure your life will bring um situations to you where you have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, this whole thing of deserve. Okay. For example, um, when I lived at Maba, the Buddhist temple outside of St. Louis, uh, I was working with a Theravada monk. And one of the students from Seattle, Andrew, you remember him. So he came uh, out and he was living there. And Andrew knew some Dharma, but he was comparatively, you know, new to the Dharma. Uh, But he had lots of ideas. And so (laughs) about how to change this and how to do that and how to improve the training and what should be taught and all this kind of stuff. 
And, uh, and I remember Santicaro saying to him one day, you know, when you come into a monastic environment, you have to, you know, to give your opinion, you have to, um, how did he incorporate the word deserve? Like you have to, you know, deserve to, to have your opinion matter. Yeah. And, you know, I've always thought deserve, deserve, you know, but in that in, in situation, yeah, yeah, some, there's something about the word deserve that I don't, you know, is a little bit uncomfortable for me. You know, like there's rules and you have to fulfill them, but you're not quite sure what they are. And somebody else judges whether you're deserving or not. But that's my, that's my discomfort with the word deserve. It's not out there. Um, but then I thought about it and rather than use the word deserve, you know, if he had said, you know, to Andrew, you have, instead of you have to deserve to, you know, give your opinion to, to say in any kind of situation, um, if you want your opinion to matter to people, you have to show that you are, um, committed to the organization or that you have some genuine interest in improving the quality of the group of people that you're talking about. Okay, so rather than using the word deserve, you know, the, the fact that we, we have to show that, that somehow we're actually involved, that we're not simply an opinion factory, um, uh, you know, telling everybody else how to run their lives, um, but actually being involved and being concerned and wanting uh, something good for the people we're giving our opinions to. What? Skin in the game. Yeah. So it's skin in the game? Skin in the game. It's a quill where you're actually putting yourself into what you say you want to have happen. I want, I want to put some skin in the game. It's this funny American investment. Oh. I want to put a commitment to it. I'm willing to put my skin. time, my energy. I've never heard that one. It's American. You I'm get deprived. It. <laughs> <laughs> you got to peel off some skin. I never you know? heard <laughs> whack-a-mole either before Geshe-la used it. Yeah, really, you know. No, I had I never know. heard whack-a-mole. No. But it needs to be emotionally invested in the idea that you are offering, that you're willing yeah. to put time, energy, commitment to it. Right. And, and, and if you, if you have that investment, then, and you've shown that investment, people will listen to your opinion. But if you're not invested and you're just angry or dis, comforted or you feel like you want to give people advice on how to run their lives, um, then they're not going to listen. Yeah. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, but anyway, like I was saying, life will soon present us with many situations on which we have to really think about that. 
You know, what does it mean to be compassionate? And there's there's doing behavior that looks compassionate, and there's doing behavior that looks inconsiderate, but doing behavior that looks compassionate does not have a one-to-one correlation with the person being compassionate. Yeah. You can do things that look compassionate, but without being compassionate. And you can do things that look inconsiderate or mean without your motivation being inconsiderate or mean. Okay. It's the same thing with anger, you know? And I think these issues, that's why I brought it up, you know, in the class, are are very much related. Uh, You can act in a passive way, and sometimes you can be, uh, you know, have fortitude and act, or I'm sorry, not a, a, a passive way, okay? You can have fortitude and have passive behavior, You can also have anger and passive behavior. So the mental attitude and the physical, the external behavior can be very different. Okay. You can be extremely angry and be very passive. You just shut down, tune out, withdraw, don't speak to anybody. Or you can be have fortitude and just have let go of your anger, and you see for that particular situation, passive behavior is really the best thing. It's not something that's worth making a big deal about. Okay. Similarly, with a very uh, assertive or sometimes even aggressive behavior, Sometimes you can be angry and have very aggressive behavior. That's what we usually associate it with. But sometimes you can be angry and have passive behavior. Sometimes you can have fortitude, a very calm mind, but your behavior is very assertive and can even be aggressive in certain instances. Yeah. So the behavior behavior is one thing. The motivation, the mental attitude is another one. And so it's the same thing with acting compassionately or uh, doing something that looks like you're, you're just, you know, saying figure it out yourself. Okay. So figure it out yourself can be done out of compassion with a compassionate motivation or with an, an angry motivation or an uncaring motivation. And helping somebody can be done with a compassionate motivation and also with an uncaring motivation. Yeah, Because often when we do something for somebody, we infin- infinite, infant attack. Infanticide? No. We keep them as infants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you don't let people grow because you're fixing all their problems all their time. Yeah, but then you feel so good about yourself, how compassionate you are. Okay, so these things are not cut and dried. And so we blunder through life trying to figure it out and by trial and error, you know, always checking our own motivation, always checking the results of our actions, yeah, and realizing that since we do not know people's karma and we cannot read their minds, uh, there's no proven way as ordinary sentient beings to come up with the one right way of doing something. Okay, so we left off at 117 last time. Yeah. So let's go back to 116 and review that. So therefore, sentient beings are asserted to be equal in the share that they have in establishing Buddha qualities. Okay, why are they equal in establishing Buddha qualities? The Buddha nature of every living being without exception has the capacity within themselves to become a Buddha. No, but th- this is talking in terms of us establishing our Buddha qualities. Okay. Therefore, they are asserted to be equal in the share that they have in establishing our Buddha qualities, helping us on the path. So what does that mean? Yeah. When we are uh, practicing, for instance, the perfections, we have to practice those uh, with the basis of other sentient beings. So practicing generosity and fortitude, as Shantideva has been speaking about, um, we can't perfect our good qualities and accumulate the merit necessary to become Buddhas without sentient beings. And of yeah. course, bodhicitta. Yeah. Okay, so we need the objects with which we, pra- you know, they're the objects with which we practice generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, you know, compassion, all these things. Okay. Yet, none of them are equal in good qualities with the Buddhas who are boundless oceans of excellence. Okay, so their sentient beings are equal to the Buddhas in in terms of how they provide us the opportunity to create merit, but they aren't equal to the Buddhas in terms of their good qualities themselves. Okay, because sentient beings are overwhelmed by afflictions. Yeah, so they have some good qualities, but the Buddhas have more. I mean, that's why we revere the Buddhas, isn't it? Okay, but like I mentioned last time, when we have problems, who do we go to for help? Do we go read a Dharma book? Or do we go to our friends who are likely to be on our side? 
Uh, when we care about our reputation, do we care about what the Buddhas would think about us? Or do we care about what ordinary, afflicted, sentient beings think about us? Yeah? They always say care about the wise, you know, whether the wise approve or don't approve of our actions. We usually forget about the wise. You know, we just think about, you know, who... I don't care who's wise or not. It's whoever will approve of what I want to do is my friend, and therefore they must be wise. Okay. Whoever will praise me must be a good person. Yeah. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? Yeah. Because you can, everybody can find somebody who will praise their stupid actions. Can't we? I mean, do you just look at the politics of this country? You know, having somebody praise you means nothing in the public forum nowadays. Okay? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you want... I shouldn't use names, but you know who I mean. Yeah. You know, what does their praise mean for you? Well, for some people, it means a whole lot. It means I might have a job after the next election. So whatever I have to do for these people to praise me, that's good. Yeah. So that that's... Yeah, I mean, that's what we do. Who cares about who's wise? Who cares about who has good ethical standards? Okay. So that's why Shantideva is very clear here in in differentiating sentient beings as having a share in in our creating our creation of good qualities, it means them being the object of that. It doesn't mean by their being the example necessarily of good qualities. You know, because the Buddhas are the ones whose whose advice we should follow, whose example we should follow. Uh, okay, so 117, even if the three realms were offered, it would be insufficient in paying veneration to those few beings in, hu- in whom a mere share of the good qualities of the unique assemblage of excellence appear. Okay, so even there's beings who have just a small portion of the good qualities of the Buddha, okay, it would, you know, to, usually we think whoever has good qualities, we make offerings towards them, you know, to them. We give them gifts. Um, but even somebody who has just a fraction of the good qualities of a Buddha, even if we offered the, all the three realms of samsara, you know, it would be insufficient to really show our respect and veneration for people who have just a portion of those good qualities. Okay. 
Thus, since sentient beings have a share in giving rise to the Supreme Buddha qualities, surely it is correct to venerate them as they are similar in merely this respect. Okay? So if it makes sense to venerate those who have a share of the Buddha's qualities, well, in the sense of sentient beings providing an opportunity for us to create merit, they have a share of the Buddha's qualities. And so thus it's correct for us to benefit them, even if they only resemble the, the Buddha's in terms of that respect of giving us the the circumstances to create merit. Yeah, not necessarily in terms of, uh, you know, their realizations or their good qualities. 119, furthermore, what way is there to repay the Buddhas who grant immeasurable benefit and who befriend the world without pretension other than by pleasing sentient beings? Okay, so when we think of the uh, kindness of the Buddha, and this is a meditation that we should really do, you know, uh, there's the, the meditation on the recollection of the Buddha, and there we often think of the Buddha's good qualities, yeah? But thinking about the Buddha's kindness is a little bit different. Because then we really have to think about how we directly benefit from uh, the Buddha. Okay? And uh, it's very important, actually, to think about this. Because otherwise we just say, oh, well, I prostrate to the Buddha because, uh, well, that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, you, you come into a temple, what do you do? You prostrate to a Buddha. Um, but why? Yeah. Oh, well, because they have good qualities. But then that's kind of putting it out there. It's, if we really think about how we particularly have benefited from the Buddha's uh, actions, then that's a whole different ballgame. Okay, so how have you benefited from the Buddha? He said, they grant a measurable benefit. Well, what benefit have you received? Yeah. Oh, maybe you uh, get the pear tomorrow <laughs> that, it, that belonged to the Buddha and uh, somebody gives you it afterwards. Is that how you benefit from the Buddha? Well, then maybe the guy at the grocery store. Yeah. How do you benefit? I think the biggest thing is um, learning um, how I behave ethically or not then leads to happiness or not. That's kind of the big one. Mm. Um, because before I stumbled upon Buddhism, I had no clue about that. About virtuous actions yeah. being the cause of happiness. Yeah, yeah. That just wasn't in my, my frame. But, yeah. yeah. So the mind training teachings have been very helpful for my mind. And mm -hmm. if I look at my life before I met Buddhism and now, I is just an, totally different. And uh, how much more happiness and contentment 
and um yeah how how much my mind has changed since for the for the better more peace mm -hmm. more more joy more more clarity can you be more specific about about that how your mind has changed what's changed that's brought you more clarity and more joy yeah um um Let's see, for example, um, not being so focused on a narrow view, but having a, a broader view of myself and the situations that I've been through. Mm. Um, to know how to transform any situation or any feeling or um, any mental obstacle into something that is actually going to bring me peace and have happiness is how to work with my mind mm -hmm. so that I can, I can stop creating mental misery and instead create mental happiness. And also how to work skillfully with others, how to skillfully look at what others do and how they do it. And, um, and see beyond, see beyond what is just in front of my, mm -hmm. of my, my face. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I think the biggest help that the Buddha has given me is that he has helped me to get out of my chronic self of victimization, that I'm a victim of the world. That is mm -hmm. other people's fault for all my pain, all my misery, all my suffering. And that the un beginning to understand that I am my, I am the director of my own life and that karma does function. And I've seen when I start behaving that it comes around in a different way. And that he has also helped me to have some kindness for myself. I don't have to be a victim, but I don't have to beat myself up either. So I don't have to throw myself into the other extreme. So it is, he has helped me to earn my own self-respect, my own uh, kindness toward myself and compassion mm -hmm. toward myself. And then, and in response to that, giving people the respect and the care that they deserve. So it's kind of coming around to where I can do that a little bit more than I ever could before. Mm -hmm. How about some of the people in the back, the last two rows? Some of the people who aren't wearing robes. So what came to mind for me is um, how the teachings of the Buddha have allowed the struggles and pain, that physical pain I was having during retreat, how those teachings have transformed so much of that to me into something that good comes has come out of even mm -hmm. though I still have some discomfort, my mind is dealing with it in a different way. The teachings on impermanence and, and emptiness or compassion or tong lamming, there's just, there are more than you can even have time to apply. And so knowing that <laughs> and figuring out that there's that much power to those teachings has really um, shifted my perspective um, in an experiential way rather than an intellectual way, which is what a lot of those teachings were before. I was reflecting on the question, 
what has the Buddha? Um, so when I was thinking about that, I was thinking that <clears throat> for, uh, it has provided a safe direction, that there's like the GPS is set now. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a there's a direction in which to go. There's a safe harbor when there seems to when when the mind or situations become um, confusing and it's hard to have discernment. I can now recall, uh, take refuge in that moment, and so that's how I feel the blessings of the Buddha have helped. Mm. What does take refuge in that moment mean? What do you do? What I do in that moment Mm. when I take refuge, when I'm feeling all kinds of things are happening, I just visualize. I actually visualize the holy beings. I don't really know sometimes. I'll just say, I'm here for discernment. Just, you know, just (laughs) I'm going to just be still now. I don't really ask any for anything in particular. I just say I'm going. I'm going in this direction. These are the whole. This is the holy beings. I'm open for discernment. Sometimes it's just doing nothing, and uh, most of the time, yeah, it's just being very quiet. But it's just a sense of stillness, and I'm good. Mm. I may not look like I'm okay, <laughs> but this is that's what I do. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of like what she was saying. Going the GPS is set. And you're coming back to the GPS. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So furthermore, what way is there to repay the Buddhas who grant immeasurable benefit? Yes, to really think, you know, what is the benefit the Buddhas have given us? I'm giving you a lot of meditation topics. Yeah. So, you know, and you're doing retreats, so these are things to think about during retreat. Yeah, because during retreat, you have the time to sit and think about these things. Okay. To repay the Buddhas who grant a measurable benefit and who befriend the world without pretension. Wow. Befriend the world without pretension. Do you remember what pretension means? There was pretension and deceit. That couple. Yeah? Yeah. What's pretension? Yeah, thinking you have good qualities you don't have. And deceit? (laughs) Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. Pretending you don't have those bad qualities. Okay? So imagine somebody who befriends you, and they're not putting on a show, pretending to be some great, fantastic person. And they're also not hiding their, their bad qualities. Yeah. But also they don't have a lot of bad qualities. Yeah. So isn't that somebody who you would want to be a friend, to be your friend, or you would want to be their friend? Yeah. Isn't that somebody you, you would respect and want to venerate and want to repay the kindness of? 
Because finding, finding people like that is quite difficult. Yeah? When you, when you meet people, are you free of pretension and deceit? No, two people say no, and the rest of you have pretension and deceit, because you're not being very honest at this moment. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, I mean, when we meet people, what's the thing we want to do? We want to create a good impression. Yeah, when you're going for on a job... You know, for a job interview. Yeah, that's the essence of a job interview. How to pretend you have knowledge and qualities that you don't, and how to hide all your, all your deficiencies. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the way you get a job. And if you're going on uh, like a dating app, yeah, or even not a dating app, just you meet somebody, what do you try and do? Yeah, it's so different than just meeting friends. It's you got to put on the show. You're selling yourself to somebody, aren't you? Trying to make a good impression on somebody so they'll be attracted to you. So you pretend to be all these things that you aren't. Yeah, and you hide everything that, you know, is not so flattering in terms of what you share and say to that person, but also in terms of how you act. Yeah? When you're cord- in the courting stage, everybody's so nice. Yeah? And then what does they say? When the honeymoon is over, then you are just how you always are. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, yeah, so are we very truthful when we meet people? Or how much do, you know, even you, you know, you go into a Buddhist environment. Yeah. Oh, I'm a great practitioner. I've taken this initiation and that initiation. I've done this retreat and that retreat. I know this. I know that. Yeah, yeah, and I know all these teachers, you know, and then you pull out your pictures with all your teachers, uh, with you standing next to them, of course. Yeah, and you drop a few more names. Yeah, that's the same thing we do in Buddhism. Yeah, go into the Dharma Center like that. We don't tell everybody how difficult we are to live with. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, I want to join the Abbey. And do you know, I want to sleep until 8 o'clock. I want to eat sweets all the time. I want lunch to be at 1 o'clock, breakfast in bed, and, uh, you know, uh and coffee. (laughs) Coffee. (laughs) Yeah. I need some coffee and, uh, you know, medical marijuana. You know, what do you guys have against that? And 
And, uh, you know, what's this offering service bit? People should offer service to me. Okay. So, you know, we're not very truthful coming into a monastery or a temple, are we? Yeah. We think that because we, you know, bring a few fruits or chocolate (laughs) to put on the altar, that then, you know, we are privileged guests. What do people say here? They say, when you first come to the Abbey, everybody's so nice to you, especially the teacher. They give you so much attention. Once you ordain, they don't pay attention to you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, except to complain about you. (laughs) That's the attention you get. Yeah, and point out your faults and say, why did you do this or why haven't you done that? You know, and you go, wow, they were so nice when I came. <laughs> well, you were so nice when you first came. <laughs> yeah. So, furthermore, what way is there to repay the Buddhas who grant immeasurable benefit and who befriend, befriend the world without pretension other than by pleasing sentient beings? So, you know, we, like I said, we usually want to please the people we like the, or who, people who we respect, who have qualities that we want. Yeah. So what makes them the happiest? Who do they care for? Who do the holy beings care for most, even more than their own selves? Yeah, sentient beings. Yeah, I mean, if we think we're giving uh, two tangerines and a pear because uh, it, it's going to benefit sentient be- uh, benefit the Buddha. You know, Buddha doesn't need that. Yeah, we need to create the merit. But, you know, what, what about if, if we gave four pairs and three tangerines, yeah, to somebody who supports the political party we don't like? Yeah, or some policy that we don't like. Uh, Do they have to agree with our ideas before we'll give them some fruit? If we give them for fruit, yeah, isn't that pleasing the Buddha? Because don't the don't the Buddhas? cherish sentient beings more than themselves. So that guy who wants to open carry his AK-47 or AR-15, the Buddha cherishes more than himself. Yeah? Do you see what I, I meant? Like it's one thing to think Oh, yes, I have so much compassion for people. And it's another thing to think of 
specific people. Yeah. When you read the newspaper and you read what's going on, can you have compassion for the people that we're seeing just in a very one-sided way? Yeah, because usually to for have to be fit to uh, be written up in the newspaper, either you do something wrong or somebody doesn't like you and they're complaining about you. Yeah, isn't that most most articles? Yeah. So, well, can we look at, at those people and say the Buddha cherishes them more than they cherish themselves? And that repaying the, you know, doing something to improve the quality of life for sentient beings is a way of repaying the kindness of the Buddha. Because we just thought about the kindness of the Buddha towards us. And how are we going to repay that? Maybe by just having a conversation with somebody who we have policy differences with. And maybe you don't even have that conversation about the policies. You have a conversation about something that you're both interested in. I think I told you this story about when we first moved here and um, that we, they had to put in a new septic system for Ananda. And so the guy who put it in came out one day to do some adjustments. So this is when uh, me and the two cats were living here. And I went out to talk to him because I want to get be, get to know people. And um, <laughs> he starts to, you know, he starts telling me about um, the sheriff. Uh, he, what was it? His dogs were making too much noise. Not the sheriff's dogs. This guy's dogs were making a lot of noise, and somebody complained about it. And so the sheriff came up to just talk to him about, you know, kind of getting things calmer, you know. And he he told me, I took out my gun and I told the sheriff that he better get off my property as soon as he can. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and I'm alone and I'm standing here talking to you. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I've never met anybody that I knew that said that to law enforcement before <laughs> and lived to show it. Yeah. And and then I I didn't leave, you know. We kept talking and we talked and and we finally got around to the a conversation a little bit about the school system. And he is um, very involved in his kid's education. And, you know, if his he doesn't want his kid to play hooky. He doesn't want his kid messing off. He wants his kid to go to school and to behave well in school. And I thought, wow, that, that what, how fantastic is that? 
to have a parent who is really interested in their kid's education instead of seeing the school system as babysitters where they can, you know, put their kids so they can do something else. Yeah. And so I really respected him for that. Mm -hmm. When, um, back in, what year was this? 1982, Lama Yeshi had the, Enlightenment Experience Celebration, yeah, in India. And he wanted, uh, you know, kind of all of his students who could possibly go to go. So uh, I went and I gave myself the assignment that uh, I was going to talk to everybody in that group. You know, there were well over 100 people sometime during those three months and have a good conversation with any with everyone. So there was this one person who, um, yeah, you know, I had, a, a, I can't remember what we even talked about, um, but we found something, you know, that we had a common interest in, and we talked about. And then uh, <laughs> by the end of the of the program. Um, we had discovered that he was a, uh, what do you, sh- what do you, um, call the people who open their trousers and show themselves a d- exhibitionist? Yeah. So we found out that he was doing that with some Tibetan nuns. Yeah. But yet, I had had a really good conversation with him, not about exhibition, (laughs) but about something else. In other words, that every person, they have multiple sides to them. They are not just a one-sided thing. Yeah. One of the guys I write to, you know, who's imprisoned, who... I think is an incredibly good practitioner, um, is in for double murder, two life sentences. Yeah? But if he got out, I would have no qualms about him coming to the Abbey. No qualms at all. Yeah? So what I'm saying here is the Buddha's cherish other sentient beings more than themselves, yeah, and what enables them to cherish other sentient beings more than themselves is that they have a really big mind, and they see goodness in everybody, and they don't create one-sided stereotypes of individuals, yeah, and they all always you know, well, now that they're Buddhists, I don't know, but at least before Buddhahood, they would always contemplate the kindness of sentient beings. And so their usual way of seeing others is there are, you know, kind sentient beings who are helping me. Yeah. When you go to the hospital and, and you know, you're coming out of surgery, you don't ask somebody, what political party are you? Yeah. Or what's your stance on immigration? 
Yeah, that kind of stuff is, you know, you don't care about at that moment. When so, you know, when there's a doctor, when there's a nurse, yeah, you you need their help and you take their help regardless of, you know, what they come from. Although my brother did tell me one time, uh, my brother's a doctor, he said that one time somebody came to him and said, um, uh, you're not a Christian, so I'm going to change doctors. Yeah, which he thought was rather peculiar. So he said, okay. <laughs> Free world, choose your own doctor. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's certainly not the way the Buddha would, would see sentient beings. Okay. So we've done two verses. Let's rush on. Let's do at least another one. Okay, therefore, since benefiting these beings will repay those who have given their bodies and entered the deepest hell for their sake, I shall behave impeccably in all that I do, even if these sentient beings cause me a great deal of harm. Okay, so since benefiting these beings repays the kindness of the Buddhas, who have so much compassion that if they could benefit sentient beings in the hell realm, they would very gladly enter the deepest hell realm and do that. So to repay the kindness of those beings with that kind of compassion, then I shall take upon myself to behave impeccably in all that I do and not harm sentient beings and respect them. Yeah, Respect them in terms of their being a cause for my awakening. Yeah, It doesn't mean respecting them for all that they, you know, that they do. But even if they cause me a great deal of harm, comparing the amount of harm that they've given me with their kindness or the amount of harm sentient beings have given me compared to um, how good it would feel to repay the kindness of the holy beings, yeah, then behaving impeccably towards all these sentient beings makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Because it benefits them, it benefits us. It's an incredible way of repaying the kindness of the Buddha. And it's important for us, you know, I mean, we do a lot of meditation on the kindness of others, and specifically the kindness of our parents, and specifically of our mother, so that we generate the feeling of wanting to repay that kindness. But when we think of the kindness of the Buddha, which we may not do so much. There isn't, you know, a specific meditation in the outline, even though it, it should come under the recollection of the Buddha. Um, uh, you know, to, to generate the feeling of the kindness of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and wanting to repay their kindness. Okay.
when for their sake those who are my lords, uh, never mind that none of us like that word, Lord, but, <laughs> you know, when for their sake the, those who are the Buddhas or the holy beings have no regard even for their own bodies, then why am I the fool so full of self-importance? Why do I not act like a servant towards them? Okay, so they're the holy beings who have no regards for their own body, who will enter the deepest hell or sacrifice their life, you know, the, the story about the Buddha as a bodhisattva giving his body to the tiger mother, you know, so she could feel, feed her cubs. Okay, so beings who have no regard for, even for their own bodies uh, because they want to benefit other sentient beings so much. So if I compare myself to them, why am I so full of self-importance? Doesn't that question make you go, take a big gulp and go, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> you know, like, I better get my act together. Yeah. Why am I so full of self-importance when I have total regard for my own body and no regard for the bodies of others? Yeah. And I will take that last piece of broccoli so that I have it and nobody else gets it. Yeah. Or no, I won't take the last piece because then people will think that I'm really self-important. But I will take the next to the last piece <laughs> and leave the last piece. Yeah? Yeah, that's what you do, don't you? You never take the last of anything because that makes you look selfish. Yeah. Unless Venerable Yeshe would come around and make you eat it. Okay. <laughs> which she thankfully did. Okay. When is it? Well, yes, she coming, you know. Okay. Oh, she's bringing the broccoli. Good. No, not the broccoli, the chocolate chip cookies. Ah, oh, that's better. <laughs> yeah. She wants to get rid of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we're full of self-importance, aren't we? Yeah. I am here. Yeah. Aren't you privileged to have me here? That's kind of the way we treat our parents sometimes. Yeah? You are so privileged to have me as your child. Give me more. Give me more. <laughs> Show your appreciation of me, your child, by fulfilling everything I want. Yeah, I mean, as kids, very often that's what we thought our parents were for. Yeah, and when they didn't give us what we want, we said, I didn't ask to be born, you had me. So it's your duty to <laughs> give me what I want. Yeah. Why am I so filled with self-importance? Okay.
No, it's why am I the fool so full of self-importance? As if we didn't look foolish. We could hide our foolishness even while bragging about our self-importance. Why do I not act like a servant towards them? Yeah, so act as a servant towards the holy beings. Act as a servant towards the sentient beings. It comes to the same point. Yeah, because who do the Buddhas cherish more? The sentient beings. Okay, so I just... uh, Remember living in Dharma centers, and whenever um, a special teacher would come, everybody wanted to cook for that teacher. Everybody wanted to wash, go into one of the centers I lived at. They had a little villetta, you know, the special little cottage for the the special teachers. Well, yeah, even for our regular teacher lived there. And there's extra rooms for the special teachers. And we all wanted to go there and wash our teachers' dishes. Yeah. There were quarrels about who was going to work in the villetta and who was going to vacuum and who was going to clean the bathroom and who was going to do the dishes. People would quarrel over that. But, yeah, to go cook for all the people attending the course? No. Wash their dishes? Forget it. Vacuum? Clean up? No one wanted to do that. Somebody else should do that. Okay? So that showed, actually, how immature we were in our Dharma practice. Yeah? We wanted to serve the holy beings and wanted other sentient beings to serve us. Yeah, without seeing that serving sentient beings is serving the Buddhas. Okay, time for a couple of questions. Yeah. This is not a yes, but... But <laughs> the impact of the importance of sentient beings and being fields of merits, it's, it's not a yes, but. There's this passage in Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha nature that I'm having trouble understanding even more so now, and it's this passage where you and His Holiness write, in general, any action that is instigated by ignorance is the cause of samsara, even though the motivation may be virtuous, such as similitude of the determination to be free or the compassionate wish to help someone. Mm-hmm. Whereas actions sustained by the power of the basis, referring to actions involving holy objects, are exceptions to this, actions done with faith in the three jewels, and so on, are virtue concordant with liberation. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be pushing against no, this. <laughs> No, it, it, it's, it's not. Read the first passage again. Because uh, I just want Any action that's instigated yeah. by ignorance is the cause yes. of samsara. Okay, okay, now I got it. So, we ordinary beings, right? Do we have... How many actions do we have that 
uh, do not involve grasping at inherent existence. Yeah, very few. Okay, so whenever there's grasping at inherent existence, we are creating the cause for samsara. So even if we have a good intention, even if we're making offerings to the Buddhas or whoever, because our intention is one that involves grasping at true existence, it's creating the cause of samsara. It creates the cause for a good rebirth. Okay, so creating the cause for samsara, we sometimes means, oh, that's the lower realms. No, it can be creating the cause for a good rebirth in which we can practice the Dharma. Okay, there's just this caveat due to holy objects, which seems to refer to, to the, you know, actual people or to the, the representations of the, of the holy beings. Okay, so there's some caveat there because of the power of the blessings and inspiration that they've given. Yeah? So if we try and have some kind of thought of bodhicitta when we're Mm -hmm. serving sentient beings, does that edge it towards this kind of virtue that is... Sort of like unquestionable. It's virtue, but it's virtue that's going to ripen as something good in samsara because we have grasping at true existence behind it. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's this is hard. I had the same reaction too because you always hear, oh, I mean, when yeah, the first verse in in this book all the benefits of generating bodhicitta and this and that benefit and that benefit. And you think that, okay, you know, as soon as I generate bodhicitta, I'm going to be a Buddha. There's so many benefits to it because you create eons of merit by, you know, giving, you know, your cat food. Yeah, <laughs> with, with the idea of bodhicitta. Yeah, and the sky's full of merit. So you think, oh, that, that's gonna make me a Buddha, you know, at least by Tuesday. Yeah, maybe earlier by Monday, maybe a little later by Wednesday. Yeah. But, but see, what, what the teachings do is you look at different things from different angles and the way the angle you're looking at something at, it, it can be give you a very different feeling about it. Okay, so in terms of encouraging us to generate bodhicitta and all the benefits in samsara and nirvana from generating bodhicitta, yeah, then, yeah, you, you get the, like the first chapter of this book. But in terms of reminding us that bodhicitta alone won't get us to full awakening. We have to realize emptiness, saying that as long as true, there's true, true grasping, you know, in our mind, the whatever action we do, even though it's incredibly virtuous, is going to be the cause of samsara. 
it doesn't mean that there's very little virtue in it. It doesn't mean that it's not going to get you to a- awakening. It It is de- actually setting you towards awakening, but it's not going to be one of the direct causes for awakening. Okay? But it's really good, and we need to create as much of that as we possibly can until we realize emptiness. <laughs> okay? Anything else? Yeah. Uh, someone online is asking, can you give an example of when assertiveness and even aggressiveness is needed, aside from the highway child example that you that you give? <laughs> um, well, I think the highway child example is a really good one. But you do the same thing with an adult. Yeah. When sometimes when you see an adult doing about to do something extremely harmful, it depends on your relationship with that person. You don't go up to a stranger and start doing that. But somebody you know, sometimes you have to go to them and say, look, this is not good to do. Yeah. And you have to say it very strongly. Yeah. Any of you experience that? Yeah? Either being the recipient of it or being the one who delivers it? Yeah, sometimes you you have to do that even with an adult. Hmm? I mean, just because people are adults doesn't mean that they're smart. <laughs> yeah, does it? Huh? Okay. Okay, let's dedicate. And then I'll try and remember to feed my tree with compassion <laughs> with Bodhijita. <laughs> when you see that, yeah, we think, oh, you know, oh, it's just cre- because it's it's you know, no wisdom realizing emptiness is just some small virtue. But when you look at it, how many times do you even remember to feed the cat with bodhicitta at all? And then you remember not very often. So then it is a big virtue when you do remember to do that. Because, you know, by virtue of its frequency, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, Upeka gives you a lot of opportunity to feed it with, with compassion. And and also to be firm and say no. Yeah, so that's another example besides the child. You can do it with a cat. <laughs> no. 